We're starting a new three-week series today called Out of Context, and uh, it's going to explore the importance of understanding God's Word in context. Next Sunday and the Sunday after that, I'm going to take two passages of Scripture that are oftentimes used out of the context I think God intended and, and look at them in the way that I believe God wants us uh, to see them. Because context, you see, really matters in almost every area of life. Look at any quote, any story, any, any written instructions, and the context will be as critical to your understanding as the actual words themselves. Let me give you a couple examples this morning. Here's a famous quote from Brigadier General Anthony McCulloch. It's a one-word quote, and it's simply, nuts. Now, if you didn't know the context in which that was given, you'd wonder if he was asking for a can of cashews or if he was talking about the fall habits of Midwestern squirrels. You don't know what that quote is. So let me give you the context. During World War II, in the 101st Airborne Division held the city of Bastogne during the Battle of the Bulge, and they were surrounded by the German troops. The German commander sent word to General McCulloch that they were surrounded, and he demanded surrender. And since General McCulloch was known as one of those officers that never used profanity, this is the one-word response he made at the demand of surrender. Nuts. And they held, recruitments came, and they were victorious. Became one of the more famous quotes of World War II. But the context is pretty critical to understanding what really happened Alan and Sharon Phillips recently returned from a trip where one of the places they visited was Athens, Greece, which is rich in church history. On Sunday morning, they worshiped with a congregation that met in the church building you'll see on the screen behind me. And one of the most unique things happened during the service. One of the people worshiping there was arrested in the church service. Now, folks, I've been preaching for 40 years, and I have never seen anybody arrested in a church service. And you, and you begin to wonder, my goodness, was this some kind of disturbing the peace moment in time? Was he brandishing a weapon? Are you ready for this? You ready for the context? He went to sleep in the church service. <laughs> I love this story. <laughs> Finally, justice has been applied through all of these years. The Greeks really get it. I'm telling you, they, they, really, they really get it. I've put our wonderful men and women in uniform on notice that this international law will be applied here at Sherwood Oaks from here on out. Have you ever heard somebody try to put metaphors together? You know, metaphor is one of those descriptive language terms. Have you ever tried, heard anybody put too many of them together so that it doesn't make sense? Here's a boss talking to an employee. With that half-baked idea, you've just thrown the baby out with the bathwater and dropped the ball, leaving it in my court to punt until the chickens come home to roost. <laughs> or have you ever heard anybody try to combine metaphors? Like, it's always darkest before the cows come home. <laughs> A penny saved isn't worth the paper it's printed on. Step up to the plate and fish or cut bait. You see, metaphors, when you take them out of context or where you try to put them together or you try to use too many of them all at once, they don't make sense. They have to be used in the proper context for them to have any sense at all. When it comes to the Word of God, context really matters. As a matter of fact, I believe that understanding God's Word is one of the most important things we have, one of the most, you know, uh, important responsibilities that we share because it is God's message to us. And so understanding it in the sense in which God gave it is an important part of our study. Now I want you to listen to what Peter wrote to the early church. This is 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. 
He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You understand what this is saying? That this word that we treasure, this word of God that we, that we study, is not the invention or the creation of the prophets or the teachers or the rabbis or the leaders of the world. This is God's word given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the writers of humanity. This is no ordinary book. And it is so important that we understand it in its context. Difficult and confusing passages become clearer when studied in their proper historical, cultural, or grammatical contexts. I often hear people talk about the Bible as being hard to understand. And there are passages, to be sure, that for the last 2,000 years, theologians have, have differed over how it is to be understood. But those passages really are few and far between. I mean, what the Bible has to say about preparing for eternity is pretty clear. What the Bible has to say about our behavior is pretty clear. You, you can leave the difficult passages for a discussion on another day when we start practicing what we do understand and understanding it in the context that God intended. Now, before I go any farther, I think we have to answer this question. Is the Bible trustworthy? After all, even context doesn't really matter if the document you're reading isn't trustworthy to begin with. Now, I wish I had time this morning to explore all the reasons why I believe what I believe. You're just going to have to do some of that study on your own, or I will give you some material where you can do some reading. That will be, I'd love to do that. But you need to know where I stand when it comes to the Scriptures. I believe that the Bible is nothing less than the very Word of God, His message to us, His inspired Word, His God-breathed message of hope to all of us. I believe it is the standard by which I need to live, by which we all should live and behave. And I believe this morning that I don't live up to the standards like I should. I suspect some of you here are the same. But I do believe that even though I don't always live up to it, it holds the words of life. And they are the commands that will make my life better and make your life better if we will practice them. And you say, yes, but isn't believing the Bible to be the word of God intellectual suicide? No. I don't believe it's intellectual suicide. Now, granted, I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm not the dullest either. Faith and intellect are, are not at counter purposes. As a matter of fact, if you don't engage your brain in the study of God's Word, in your search of its truthfulness, you'll never get past your doubts. Paul was one of the greatest intellects of his day and culture, and he believed with all of his heart that what he was receiving from God was to be shared with all of us in future generations. As a matter of fact, some of the greatest intellectual minds of the past century or so, who were skeptics at first, who set out to prove once and for all that the Bible was not true as they studied it, with their brains, ended up writing a treatise and books that proved just the opposite. 
G.K. Chesterton, Frank Morrison, C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, the list goes on of those who started out to say it's not true, and when they really intellectually explored the evidence, could come to no other conclusion that it is the very Word of God. God never calls anyone to blind faith. No one has ever forced me to believe. I am convinced because the evidence leaves me no other logical, rational, or intellectual choice but to, but to believe. Now, historians continue to learn more and more about the languages and the culture of the day in which the scriptures were written. So I think today we actually have better tools of translation and understanding than we have ever had before. The scholars, when you read an English Bible, uh, an English language Bible, the scholars go back to the original three languages, the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the Greek of the New, and a smattering of Aramaic, and they translate it into English. Now, I wish, folks, I wish we had the actual letters that were penned by the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John and, and, and James, and, and you go down the list and all of the writers. I wish we had their letters, but we have the next best thing. We have copies of those letters. You see, when one of those letters would go to one of the area churches, they would make a copy of it, and they would send these letters on so they became circular, and so churches would begin to grow. We have thousands, thousands of copies or parts of copies of New Testament passages. And some of the oldest ones date back to within 25 to 30 years of the time of their original writing. Do you realize how phenomenal that is? We have 24,000 copies or portions of copies of the New Testament. 24,000. We know where there are issues and problems. We know where that the Word of God is as accurate as it possibly can be. Do you know what the second most documented writing is? It's Homer's Iliad. We have 643 copies, and the oldest copy is actually separated from the original by 500 years. Nothing in all of history has so much manuscript evidence as the New Testament. 643 copies of the Iliad, 24,000 copies of the New Testament dating all the way back to within almost a quarter of a century from the original writing. That's phenomenal. The Bible is unique in all of history, written down by over 40 different writers from 40 different generations spanning 1,500 years in its writing. It was written on three different continents in three different languages. It was written in times of war and peace, prosperity and imprisonment, joy and sorrow. It was written by an adopted prince of the Pharaoh who became a shepherd, who became the great deliverer of the Israelites, Moses. It was written by a shepherd boy who became a king, David. It was, the writers include fishermen and herdsmen, a, a military general, a cupbearer to the king, a prime minister, a doctor, a tax collector, a poet, and a rabbi. It was written by people of royal birth and common birth, formerly educated and experience educated, and yet when you read the story from the beginning to the end, there is this consistency, there is this continuity. It is like a scarlet thread that runs from the opening chapters of Genesis to the closing chapters of Revelation that points us to Jesus Christ. Genesis says he's coming Revelation says he's coming again, and the story all ties together from start to finish. One person writing a religious volume cannot be substantiated. If somebody sits down and writes a religious volume, 
There's no way to know whether they're telling the truth or they aren't telling the truth. It's just their word. But when it spans 1,500 years and 40 different writers over lots of generations and different continents and it all fits together like pieces of a puzzle, only God could orchestrate something so divine. And if you don't believe that, it, that it's that accurate and possible, then you need to ask about a dozen people who were eyewitnesses to an automobile accident a week later. And then you'll realize how fickle human observation and human memory really is. Only God could have put this together. That's what I believe. I hope you believe it too. But if you don't, don't just sit there in your doubt. Find a way to get your answers, and we'll help you in any way we can with those answers. As you read, I, I, there are some resource, resources for understanding that I want to give you this morning. Here, here's the first one. Start with the Bible, an easy-to-read translation of the Bible. Just start there, okay? Uh, find something that, that you can read well, not a paraphrase. A paraphrase is where somebody took an English Bible and then made a more common language Bible out. There's nothing wrong with a paraphrase. It's just not that great for deep study. I would recommend a translation. But start with the Bible. I like this observation by Woodrow Kroll. He says, make sure you are looking for God first in his word, not in somebody else's commentary. Read the Bible for yourself. Then ask the Holy Spirit to guide you into truth. Don't start with all the other helps that I'm going to tell you about. Start with the Bible. Then add these resources. A concordance. Now, you probably have a small one, a thin one in the back of your Bibles that, that gives you certain words. A concordance is simply a listing of where you find words in the Scripture. You want to find out where the word faith is used? It'll list all the passages where the word faith is used. Concordance is a ha handy tool. A Bible dictionary is a handy tool. Uh, do you know what a shekel, denarius, talent, omer, ephah, stadia, or cubit translates into our weights and measures? Well, if you don't, a Bible dictionary is a pretty handy tool to, to give you that. Because when you're talking about something being so many stadia long or far off, you know, that's a little hard to envision until you know how that corresponds to our English mile. Or what about the Urim and Thummim that was carried by the high priest? You know what they are? We really don't, but a Bible dictionary will help you understand. By the way, do you know what the high priest is and what he did? A Bible dictionary will help you with those things. A Bible handbook, which is a quick and handy resource for background information, historical data, archaeological discoveries, and brief overviews of Bible books is a handy tool to have, too. Uh, I've, I've used a Halley's handbook several times all through my life and ministry. It's just a great little tool to have around to help you understand the context of certain passages of Scripture. You might have a study Bible which has commentary built into it, or you might just buy a, a commentary in, in a book itself, or a volume of books that cover the whole Old Testament or New Testament. Commentaries are valuable. They give you a lot more information than what you're going to simply get if you're just reading through the text. And then here's another tool, and that is life groups. Uh, if you're not in a life group, I would suggest that you get involved in a life group. Now, our life groups meet at home. Some of them meet here. They're a small group, but here's what I've discovered over the years. I learn better. I grow better in my knowledge of Scripture if I'm with a group of people who are we're in a give-and-take discussion on God's Word. Because sometimes what they've learned or what they've seen or what they've experienced may guide me to think, oh, now that's an interesting insight. So if you're not in a life group, I would suggest you find your way into a life group. Just call us here at the church. We'll put you in touch with the folks who can help you find your way into a life group because it is a great way to grow.
Well, those are some of the resources for understanding. Now, let me give you some guidelines for understanding. 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is Paul's last letter, and he's writing to Timothy, a young minister, and he says this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. You understand what he's saying? He said, you do your best to handle God's word appropriately. Don't get caught up in all these crazy arguments and stuff. Those don't matter. Just appropriately study and understand God's word. 19th century preacher Dwight L. Moody said, I am glad that there are things in the Bible I do not understand. If I could take that book up and read it as I would any other book, I might think I could write a book like this. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? There, there is part of this that is so mysterious, it gives us insight into the fact that this is more than just a human, humanly conceived book. This is divine. And as you study, study in the right context. Uh, first of all, think about the personal context. When, when you are studying the Bible, think about the personal context. In other words, to whom was this written? And, and, and why was it written to this group of people? Uh, figure out if, if, you, if the recipient of the letter was Jewish or Gentile. Uh, figure out if the story that's being told was about believers or unbelievers. You see, the personal context is important. Find out who wrote it. Was it one of the apostles? Was it a king in the Old Testament? Was it a prophet? Because who writes it also gives flavor to how we understand it. Understand it in its historical context. What was going on during the time that passage was written? Did you know? We, we oftentimes study the Bible in, in a vacuum. Do you realize what, that, that the, the, the events of Scripture took place in a real world? That the things that we study in history were going on at the time that the things in the Bible were taking place? For instance, Buddha, Confucius, and the prophet Daniel all lived about the same time period. While the Shang dynasty was flourishing in China, Moses was leading the people out of Egypt during the Exodus. The first recorded Olympic Games in Greece was held at the same time of Jonah. The Greek historian Homer lived during the time of the prophets Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. Mount Vesuvius erupted and buried the city of Pompeii during the lifetime of the Apostle John. All the things of church history are going on in the midst of everything else that's happening in history. This is real stuff. Understand the historical context. There's a cultural context. What was the culture of the day? How did these people worship? How did they socially interact? I mean, Canaanite culture was altogether different than Jewish culture. The kingdom of Rome was altogether different than the kingdom of God. Understand the culture to whom it was written. How did the first people who received these books understand them? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, were read first by these Israelite slaves who were released from Egypt and on their way to the promised land. How did these slaves understand what Moses had written? It helps us if we can understand that cultural expectation. Then you also have a grammatical context. I mean, verb tense is different, understanding different words. I mean, even sometimes a comma can make a difference uh, as we understand things. You know, for instance, you can say, let's talk turkey. That's one thing. But if you say, let's talk turkey, that's an altogether different message. 
that's received. And a comma makes all the difference. So the, the grammatical thoughts are, 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 are important. For instance, let me give you this. Uh, in the Greek language, there are actually four words that are translated into English by the one English word, love. Three of those Greek words are in the New Testament. But when you're reading through, you're not sure which love is used. It would be helpful to know the word because they all three have a different meaning. Or sometimes people will say, well, the Bible is full of errors. You know, sometimes a time is given uh, at this time, and in other places you'll read the time is given at that particular time. That's a contradiction. Most of those contradictions are explained. For instance, that both Roman time, which is our time, Roman time, the day begins at midnight and goes through the morning and then through the evening back to midnight again. That's how we count time. But Jewish time was not that way. The Jewish time began with the evening and then the followed by the morning, and it began at 6 o'clock in the evening. So the Jewish day began in the evening and went to the morning. Roman time began at midnight and went to the following midnight. So your times are going to be different. That's why when you read in the creation story in the book of Genesis, it says there was an evening and a morning the first day because that's Jewish time. And so understanding the grammatical context makes a big difference. Sometimes there are passages that appear to be in conflict with one another, but there's generally an explanation for those as well. Let me read a couple uh, for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is Paul writing to the church. These are powerful words of hope. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, you can't earn your salvation. It's a gift from God. Got that, all right? But then if you go from there to James chapter 2, so you go from Ephesians 2 to James chapter 2, this is what we read in James. But what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but he has no deeds or works? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You see that a person is justified by what he does, by his works, and not by faith alone. And you read those two passages and say, well, which one is right? Either works count or they don't count. Either faith is, is the bottom line or faith isn't the bottom line. There's no contradiction here. It's understanding the context in which both writers write. Paul writes about our relationship with God. There is no work that you can do to earn your salvation with God. It is a relationship with Him, and your heart is justified before Him because He knows your heart. But James is writing to the church and talks about us being justified before the human race. You know, James is saying, hey, you, you may have a right relationship with God, but if it's only lip service, nobody's going to know that. Put your faith into action so the rest of the world can understand what this faith means. There's no contradiction both of them are in agreement because one is talking about our relationship with God. The other was talking about our relationship as the church with the world around us. But context makes all the difference. Uh, just last thought here on, on that, and that is simply don't twist passages for your own purposes. Okay? It's so easy to take a passage and, and say, oh, I think this sounds good. Or, oh, I like that one. And, and we apply it to our own personal life. Uh, so, and, and I could also say that, you know, be careful with the internet. 
from that standpoint of view too because you can find anything and everything on the internet and, and somebody on the internet may say, oh, that passage that applies to us. Well, maybe it does or maybe it doesn't. You be very careful with the internet. It's a great tool, but it can mislead you if you aren't careful. Don't twist the scriptures so that it applies to you. There are some people, for instance, ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. There are some who look at that from a pure earthly perspective like, oh, I'd like to have a new car. So if I pray, God will give me a brand new car. Now, that's not what that says. And, and sometimes the Bible is speaking of spiritual. Ask anything spiritually for me. Help, wisdom, joy, peace. Those, and those things are far more valuable than wealth anyway. Now, every time the McDonald's restaurant chain does their monopoly game, I'm reminded uh, of several years ago, uh, Elsie and I went into one of our local McDonald's and we sat down and it was the, you know, the Monopoly game thing was going on. We prayed before we had our, our, our meal and on our way out, an, an elderly lady asked us, pulled us over to the side and she says, are you both Christians? And, and I said, we are. And she said, well, would you pray that I win the jackpot in this Monopoly game? <laughs> And, and I, I frankly don't really remember exactly how I responded to the lady, but I probably said something, well, ma'am, I, I hope if you, if you need the extra help, I hope you get it. And I walked down and I think, that's not what this passage talks about. You know, it's, it's not the kind of wealth you pray for in scriptures. Besides that, if I'm going to pray that anybody wins that Monopoly game, it won't be her. <laughs> I had my own card, you see. Now, why is all this important? It's because we depend upon the Bible for our spiritual direction, for our eternal direction, for our day in and day out life. The Word of God leads us and teaches us where to go and how to get there, and we need to know it in its proper context, because when you know it in its context, it'll mean something much deeper. Born in 1735, Robert Robinson was eight years old when his father died. Robert was an intellectually strong young man. He was also very headstrong and, and determined, and uh, his mom, as a single mother, was hardly able to raise him. So when Robert turned 14, she sent him to London to be an apprentice to a barber. What he learned instead of barbering was drinking and gambling and gang life to the excess, and in all these drunken brawls, he was in trouble all the time. At 17, Robert and some of his drunken buddies visited a fortune teller. After that, they decided they were going to attend a, an evangelistic meeting being held at that time by the great George Whitfield, who was one of the greatest evangelists of the time. Only they weren't going to listen. They were going to go to disrupt. But something happened in the service as Robert began to listen to the Word of God. And it, it just pierced his soul, and, and, and he couldn't rest. Now, he didn't do anything about it that night. As a matter of fact, for the next three years, he was this walking battleground of the sermon that he had heard that night and the way that he really wanted to live his life. And it was back to the sermon. It was back to the way he lived and all of these kinds of things. Finally, three years later, at the age of 20, Robert yielded his life to Christ and went into ministry. But he never stopped having this battle between the world pulling him one way, and the Word of God pulling him the other way. In preparation for a sermon that he was going to preach on Sunday, he wrote this beautiful poem. We, we sing this poem as one of our treasured hymns of the faith today. 
Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. But it's the, it's the last stanza that is so powerful to me. Knowing the life of the man who wrote it. Listen to these words. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You see, in its context, that hymn has a richness because you and I can relate to it because we're pulled by the world and we're pulled by the word of God and we fight this battle and somehow the words of that hymn make more sense to me knowing the man who wrote it. The word of God will mean much more to you if you know the one who wrote it and in the context that he intended.